0: Children are not born racist. Children do not identify each other with a color. I know this to be true because I lived it. Welcome to a special edition of No Need to Ask. I am your host, Imani Duncan. I was born in Los Angeles, California, in the year 1970. My parents were fantastic, conscious, educated, worldly, and both were descendants of slaves and sharecroppers. When my sister and I were quite young, we moved to Oakland, California. My sister went to Head Start while there, and I stayed home with mom. And my dad went to work every day. Then my baba, who I referred to as my father, he got a job at Aramco, which was located in South Pasadena, California. So we relocated to that area, and my dad started working at the company as an electrical engineer. Now, South Pasadena is quite interesting. I actually love... The town. It's small, it's charming, but when we moved there, we quickly found out that in the area of South Pasadena, a beautiful tree-lined street we lived on, Fremont Lane to be exact, we were the only African-American family in all of South Pasadena. My mother was quite alarmed when she found out but my dad calmed her down and we stayed there i went to kindergarten first and second grade and so did my sister and the school was lincoln elementary school and we were the only children of color in the entire school we made tons of friends we had the best childhood we we didn't want for anything. It was just magical. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and she was in charge of our Bluebird group, and she was our homeroom monitor mother. <laughs> it was just amazing. And we played with all the kids in the neighborhood, and life was, life was nice. And then we moved to Los Angeles proper. My dad still worked at Aramco in South Pasadena, so he commuted every day. And the school that my mom and dad enrolled my sister and I in was Third Street Elementary School in the Hancock Park area of California. And I remember I was in the third grade when I first entered the school. My sister was in the hmm, fourth grade, and my third grade teacher was an African-American woman. I mean, other than my mom and my, my grandma and my cousins, I, I did, wasn't really around a lot of African-American kids in my formative years. And so I was over the moon, Mrs. Wilson. I will never forget her. She was just glorious. I thought she was the uh, side of my mom, the prettiest, prettiest lady I ever saw. And so when my mother picked me up that afternoon from school I was just elated and my mom was so happy and so she proceeded to ask a bunch of questions as we drove home and I couldn't explain to her what my teacher looked like in the way that she wanted me to explain it I told her she was tall and I, I explained what she had on that day and how she wore her hair and you know that was the way I explained or described people. And my mother kept pressing and pressing and pressing me. And I finally pointed to my hand and I said, she looks like me. She looks like me. And my mother told me this story many, many years ago when I was older. And it just demonstrated that I, I didn't see people as a color. You were either a boy or a girl or a man or a woman. And then reality set in. As I started getting older, I learned very quickly that people do identify each other by a color. You're black or white um, or brown. And it was so jarring to me because I had to quickly learn this because I was being bullied by kids of color and white kids. So it was a really challenging time in my life. But we made it through because children are resilient. And, you know, I learned a lot of hard lessons along the way. My dad would go to work every day in a three-piece suit. White shirt, tie, three-piece suit every single day. And he looked like a prince to me. I loved the way he dressed. I loved the way he spoke. I loved the way he carried himself. I wanted to be exactly like him. As a professional for myself, um, I got a deep appreciation of the things my father must have gone through. He never, ever, ever spoke of his challenges in the workplace as an African American man, as an electrical engineer, he he never came home and, and talked about it. But as I got older, he would say certain things, like he recounted a story that happened in um Mississippi uh, while he was working for Aramco. He was The project lead and they had to travel him and his team had to travel to mississippi uh for a project and when they were met at the airport by an escort and taken to the to the hotel in the town my father was denied a hotel room his team members who were all white they were told they could stay here but my father had to stay somewhere else And this was probably uh, in the 1980s. So as a professional myself, who has been the first African-American woman in almost all of the positions that I've held, I began to have this tremendous appreciation for what my father must have gone through. I have been called derogatory names at various companies I've worked at. Always a loud whisper and behind my back but I would always hear it. I kept looking straight when I would see people stare at me or look at me in a mean way. But I kept pushing on because I knew I needed to be there. I deserved the right to hold the positions that I held and I wasn't going to be scared off. (sighs) The past week has been really hard, really, really hard. I'm scared, not only for myself but for every person of color. We're all scared. And when people get scared and they feel defenseless, they become angry. I live in a upper middle-class neighborhood and I was driving down the street the other day and I passed a police car and my grip on my steering wheel got a lot tighter. I clenched my teeth and felt a knot in my stomach. I was scared. And the reason why I was scared was what happened to George Floyd, what happened to Ahmed, and the countless others could happen to me. When these incidents happen, they're not concerned if you're educated. They're not concerned if you're well off financially. All they see is the color of my skin. And so, and so therefore we're all a potential victim. I remember walking recently in my neighborhood And I saw a young African-American boy on a bike and he passed me and we greeted each other and I found myself saying maybe a little too strongly to be careful out here, to please be safe. I feel like we're living in a mad, mad world. But I also know that none of this is new, none of it. The only difference is that now it's being videotaped. This type of behavior has gone on for hundreds of years. What happened in Central Park has happened so many times before. What happened to George Floyd has happened so many times before. <sighs> My heart is heavy. But I decided I'm not going to be a victim. My friends, if you are white, we need your help. We need To band together in the name of humanity. I know it must be hard, but try to imagine if George Floyd was your son or your husband, if Ahmed was your uncle, brother, husband, or son. And I know I know this is hard for you to understand or believe that this could even be your reality because it's not. I believe in humanity, therefore I believe that all lives matter. But right now, black lives are under siege and we need to band together in the name of humanity to make a change. My brothers and sisters who are people of color, we have to unite. We have to use our voice in a nonviolent way. We have to get out and vote in every election, local and national. I know it may seem daunting because you go out and you vote and you try to make your voice heard, but yet you feel like nothing's changing. But it will change if we stay united and use the power of our voices and our actions to bring about the change we seek. This was not the episode I was planning to post today, but it is the episode that I needed to post. Thank you for listening.